Get on Team Shaq with WinBet. We're playing parlays, boosting odds, and laying the wildest prop bets. Don't miss another game. Download the WinBet sports betting app today. Sign up today and win $200 in free bets when you place a $10 first-time wager on a straight bet or parlay. That's $200 that you can use for all the upcoming basketball action, including the men's basketball tournament. If you bet at least $500 during the first and second round of the tournament, you can get a trip to the five-star rated Win Las Vegas. Offer subject to change, terms, and conditions at winbet.com. Must be 21 or older and present in a state where playthrough Winbet is available. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem, call 1-800-522-4700. What's up, everyone? Welcome to episode number 48 of the That's So Mets podcast. I'm your host, Connor Rogers. Joining me, as always, is my co-host, Joe DeMeo. And we have a really exciting episode for you today because Jim Callis from MLB Pipeline, MLB.com, will be joining the show for a pretty pretty extensive draft preview. We're going to go through the second half of this show. We'll be very focused on the MLB draft and the Mets draft as well. The first half of this show will be Mets-focused, what's going on right now. We're going to catch up on answering all the great questions you've sent us in reviews on iTunes. Very grateful for those. But of course, to kick things off, episode 48, one random number 48 for the Mets, Glendon Rush won 11 games for the 2000 Mets, one unforgettable, maybe not for the right reasons, Aaron Heilman, and of course, the GOAT, Jacob DeGrom. And if we didn't have Jim on this show today, I was going to say we'll just make this a DeGrom episode, but we do. So, Joe, let's bring in what's going on. Not much. Just really excited to have everyone hear this conversation with Jim. He's, I mean, we're talking about the GOAT to me. Jim's the GOAT of MLB draft coverage. So he's he's the DeGrom for that. And as far as episode 48, number 48, well, this is probably the last guy that's ever going to wear it. So, um, yeah, it's Heil, Heilman had a good run in the mid 2000s. Obviously, we're all going to remember the very unfortunate moment there in 2006. But all in all, I mean, just think of how reliable he was as he even did multiple innings sometimes, but had had himself a, a tough go of it there in 06 and at the end and sort of tailed off after that. But yeah, 48, there's there's some history here and obviously a number that one day I assume will be hanging in the rafters at City Field. Joe, when when was it that because I don't expect it to be pre-draft. He was a ninth round pick and he was a shortstop. But when was it that as a prospect, DeGrom got on your radar and what was that like? Because I know he he was this he caught a lot of people's eyes as he started to become a really good pitcher in the minors and eventually get called up. And we know how it went from there. But when was it that he was on your radar in the Mets system? So, I mean, he was on my radar the minute he got drafted just because I follow everyone and I'm a major nerd like that. But when it comes to thinking he could be something, never in the minor leagues, to be honest. I mean, I watched him pitch multiple times in double A with Binghamton, talking three or four outings. And his stats weren't that good. His stuff wasn't special. I mean, when I watched them pitch, I thought Dylan G was more impressive than Jacob DeGrom. I know it sounds silly to say now, but, you know, DeGrom was just 91 to 93. He might hit 94, 95 here and there. Um, He didn't have the slider that he has now. He completely altered himself as a pitcher. 
I don't know when exactly it happened and how he managed to make this change. But when I saw DeGrom, I was like, all right, well, make him a reliever. And maybe that 91 to 94 will become 95 to 97. And he could be, you know, a potential impact setup man, something like that. Like, that's the kind of projection I had of DeGrom after seeing him in person in double A. It's like future setup man. And, you know, obviously I am wrong a lot. And I don't know if I will ever be more wrong than I was in, in my assessment of Jacob DeGrom. Well, to go back to what you were saying in double A, I mean, he had a 4.8 ERA and he was striking out 6.6 batters over nine innings. So nothing special and nothing there jumps out. It's one of those things that you're good. And you see teams doing it more now, looking for two way players, making athleticism a priority for a pitcher used to just be you want the 6'3", 220-pound righty that throws mid-90s and he's just a pitcher and that's it. But now teams are sort of leaning more, let's get an athlete on the mound because if you get a true athlete, you could get more out of them. And I think that's the Mets just struck gold. They found a great athlete in DeGrom and you know he came up to pitch out of the bullpen and then something happened to Dylan G, I think, actually, and DeGrom got the start instead of pitching out of the bullpen. And obviously the rest is history, but DeGrom was never, ever on my radar as anything special in the minor leagues. I thought he was a setup man to and through. Truly remarkable development, his career. And and who knows what's left, right? I mean, that's the exciting part with DeGrom is at 33 years old, it just feels like he gets better and better. And it's, it's truly just insane to watch. So episode 48, is dedicated uh, to to the go, and that would be Jacob DeGrom. But before we throw to the interview we did with Jim Callis, which I, I can't express enough how much everyone will probably really like this. If you're not a fan of the MLB draft, I think you'll find it very interesting and you'll learn a lot. If you are a fan of the MLB draft, I think that some of the stuff he has to say about this draft class as a whole and the how the Mets are looking at it and how the event has grown and with the MLB Combine, There's a lot to go through there, but we're going to get through some iTunes questions because we've been promising that. And the first one here is from from Graham 3333. And they say, what do you view as the ideal lineup order once Nimmo, McNeil and Conforto are back? So two of those three are back now. And he says, where does VR bat? Fortunately, VR is hurt, although we don't expect that to be a long absence. A lot of tough choices here. Joe, what do you think? what it's going to look like if we can get all of those guys in the same lineup at some point. Uh, Nimmo at the top. It's where he belongs. Get on base for the guys that frankly just need to hit better, but in theory will. Uh, Lindor in the two hole. And then I guess at that point you'd go Pete, Conforto, McNeil. I think that makes sense. Dom Smith could be in there too in, in that kind of range. I think you really at this point need to play the streaks with these guys because they're, they're they're not doing what they're supposed to, obviously, or what we expected coming into the season. I mean, certainly, I you know, you had to replace Mets for all this time and everything, but I didn't expect the Mets would be at the bottom of the league in runs scored. It's absolutely blown my mind where they're at. So I would really try to play the streaks with those guys. So outside of my one, two is Nimmo Lindor. And then you could shift around three, four, five, six, even to 
play who's hot. You know, Pete obviously has been a little more consistent than the others. So, yeah, I'd, I'd play it that way, personally. I, I don't believe in having a set lineup. It's never been something I believed in. Uh, you're going to play matchups and then, obviously, streaks. Like, if McNeil's struggling, you drop him down to six. If Dom's struggling, he bats six. And I think that's probably the best way to go about it. Yeah, no disagreement there. I don't think there's an answer written in stone that, you know, you could look at it and say what might be the most... Um, you know, diverse lineup in terms of the guys that typically produce the most. But as a whole, it's just a matchup space league. And, and we see it right now. Even when you look at the numbers some of these guys have against starters or relievers and, and how they're used and how they're not used. That's just what it comes down to. But I do agree with you that it's it's kind of Nimmo Lindor and then figure it out because of their roles at the top of the lineup. So the next one is from. Armada King 66 left us a really, really nice review. But the question in it says, do you guys think it's time to admit that this Mets offense is not as good as we thought it was going to be coming into the season? What was supposed to be our greatest strength feels like our biggest liability. So I'll start with this one and say they have obviously underperformed that. Let's just get that out of the way and not sugarcoat anything. They have underperformed. Now, what I will say is there's a couple different things to digest here. Number one, and I will raise my hand that I'm very guilty of this. I think we overlooked that a lot of guys in this lineup are very bad situational hitters. And maybe that'll improve because they're young. They can turn this around. But I think there's been a trend here going back to the shortened season and what we've seen through, what, 75 games of this season that they just the strikeout. And I know this is a problem across baseball. I'm not tone deaf to that. The strikeout percentage it feels like and i haven't looked at any numbers it's just off of watching these games when there is one out or less and a runner on third these guys a lot of these guys are just not having good at bats for the most part i think that's the thing to me that i find very frustrating the rest of it maybe i'm too much of an optimist maybe i'm too much of glass half full here I think Lindor is going to have a really good second half. I think Pete has been a very consistent hitter this year. You obviously would like to see the power numbers go up, but he's been a consistent hitter. I think, you know, we're kind of waiting for McNeil to get back to form. That's very frustrating. Conforto, very streaky, and I know he just got back, but as a whole, you know, Conforto, we'll see. Dom has not been the Dom of last year as a whole. That's been a gigantic issue. You know, really, the guys that stand out that have had a lot of big hits to me were not even on this team or expected to be big contributors this year in VR and Pilar. So I, I I do agree it's not as good as we thought, and a lot of it has to do with situational hitting more so than all these guys are not going to hit 30 home runs like we expected. That's a little frustrating, but I do think each one is a bit case-by-case basis. What do you think so far, Joe? And they can't hit left-handed pitching. Let me get that in. Nobody can hit left-handed pitching in this lineup. Yeah, I mean, it, it's obvious it hasn't performed the expectations. Uh, I think one thing to point out is how many games has this team actually played together with the players they're supposed to play? Like, it feels like they haven't really done much. I mean, Pete missed some time. Conforto and McNeil missed time. Nimmo's been out forever. J.D. Davis has been out forever. So I think they just they need to get their regular players in a lineup consistently. And I think you'll see 
you'll see some production. I, I think it's a talented team. I think I don't think anyone would deny that. You know, it is a talented lineup of players. It's just they just aren't putting it together. And part is, you know, being injured, not consistently being there. It's it's really tough to watch. There's no question about it. Uh, the pitching is carrying them. The bullpen has been fantastic, which is something that we thought was going to be a weakness. So it's kind of the flip of the offense. We thought the bullpen was going to be a major issue, and it's been uh, possibly the biggest strength on the roster. And the offense just needs to catch up. I, I agree with Connor that I think the second half, you'll see some some different play from the offense. And it's going to be interesting to see how they approach the trade deadline you know, in, in, in the next month. I don't know if they're going to pursue some big bat for the offense. Uh, maybe they'll go for depth or something like that. I think pitching should probably be the focus at the deadline. But there's no question if this team is going to go anywhere, they need this offense to come back to life and be the offense that we expected it to be or somewhat close to it. Because if the pitching is able to continue as as it has been, uh, they don't need to be a top, top flight offense. They just need to be a good offense. And they have not been that. I mean, I was at, you know, you're talking about situational hitting. I was at the doubleheader against the Phillies and I watched Aaron Nola strike out 10 guys in a row and oh. they had second and third, nobody out in the first inning and K strikeout, strikeout, strikeout. And just very frustrating. The situation, situational hitting has been poor and, you know, across the board outside of Pete. And like you said, could use some more power. No one's been consistent. So really, really, really tough go of it. But I don't think by any means, you know, this offense is shot. I think they have a lot of games where they could make up some ground. And I have the expectation that generally people perform to the back of their baseball cards. That's kind of the motto I live by. And I imagine the second half, you'll see a different offensive Mets team. Let us hope. Let us hope. And, I, you know, one last thing on that is, it's interesting how the lineup seems so unprepared game by game offensively. And Ronnie has pointed this out a ton on the broadcast. While defensively, whether it's the shift or whatnot, they are perfectly prepared. The pitchers seem to have great game plans every single night, as do the relievers. But And Ronnie has really, really hammered this home. There's just too many at-bats where it's 2-0 and they're staring at fastballs down the middle or second time through the order, and the pitcher's been trying to get ahead on counts, throwing 92-mile-an-hour fastballs down the middle, and they're just watching them. Or they're not prepared for a curveball, and they can't hit a curveball. So, you know, maybe it's a rust thing. Maybe it's like you said, Joe, we haven't seen this lineup play together much at all, and maybe we're due for a big half, and that's what we could hope for. The next one from Andrew Lesser he asks, when Nimmo comes back, how does Rojas handle the outfield situation? Pilar has been playing so well, but is he the odd man out? A lot of mouths to feed, but it's a good problem to have. Can we? I love Kevin Pilar. Let me be very clear. Can can we relax with this playing so well thing? I mean, he's a 687 OPS. He's hitting 230, 266 on base. He's got a couple good home runs, and obviously he's been better in the field than I, I think even we expected, including in center field. To me, it's honestly not really a conversation. Brandon Nimmo's the regular player. Pilar can spell him or spell Dom Smith, but Nimmo's going to come back and he should be playing every day. He's a significantly better player than Kevin Pilar is. 
my take on it is that Pilar needs to be in the lineup every time a lefty is on the mound. That's my take on it. Yeah, and I mean, you have you have three lefties in the lineup. You could give one of them a break for Pilar each time you face a lefty. Exactly. That I, that I agree with. So Pilar's yes. a platoon. Uh, platoon. There yeah. it is. Yeah. I love he, it. He's it a platoon. He's a platoon guy against lefties, and ultimately, he's a fourth outfielder. That's what he was signed to be, and that's what he's performing like. As much as you know, I appreciate his toughness, his grit. I think he's you know a leader on the team, and I think he fits the clubhouse like a glove, and he's a valuable asset to the team. Let's not get it twisted that you know he he's not hitting three twenty here. He's hitting you know. 226 so he's got totally yeah he, he's just got to play against lefties and you know obviously if you give someone just a regular day off you have no issue throwing Pilar in the lineup yeah his OPS for his career against lefties is about 100 points higher so and once again this is a lineup that cannot hit lefties so that would be my Kevin Pilar take I'm with you Joe maybe it's it's been forgotten about because of how many injury problems he seemed to had but Nimmo being at the top of this lineup completely changes the offense. I mean, it really does. So that's not a conversation. It's just a matter of who's going to get a day off when there's a lefty on the mound so Pilar can play in those situations. All right, this one from C. Stoller. With the CBA set to expire, will this be the last draft where teams aren't allowed to trade their picks? And if you think teams will be allowed to trade picks in the future, do you anticipate specific rules? So teaser... We ask Jim Callis his thoughts on this entire thing, but we'll give our take here. Joe, what do you think about trading picks? I hope they do it. I think it'll bring more interest. They have to. Yeah. I mean, imagine we were having a conversation today. I mean, because the MLB draft's coming up on July 11th, and we're going to cover that here over the next couple of weeks. And then obviously after it, we'll recap. But imagine our conversation today. Maybe the question could have been, should the Mets trade up to number three to get Jack Leiter? And then it's like, all right, well, what do they have to give up to get the three? Do you give up, you know, number 10 and a second round pick? And then, or do you give up number 10 and a prospect in your system, a top 10 guy like a Khalil Lee? You know, just, I think it would just bring more intrigue, um, give more options to teams. Um, as far as specific rules, of course, there's going to be something. I mean, it's not going to be a, a complete free for all in a sense where they have the bonus constraints, you know, each pick has a value and you get a total pool value for your picks. So for the first 10 rounds, you'll get, you know, let's, I don't even know, they haven't released the pools yet, but let's just call it, you have $10 million you could spend in the first 10 rounds on picks. If you trade your first and your second to trade up, then that bonus money needs to even out. You can't just keep your same bonus pool and have less picks. So to me, I think those would be the type of things I think rules wise, that you'd want to be very specific about. But everything right now that MLB is doing is in an attempt to increase interest in the draft. Uh, the MLB draft combine, which Jim also touched on, is something that they broadcast on MLB Network. You know, they moved the draft to the all-star break, so that way it's kind of uninterfered with from, from other games. And yeah, I think the draft is only going to get bigger and bigger, and trading draft picks to me should be one of the top things on the list to, you know, improve the event. I think it'll get done. I also think that in the early goings of it, I would be surprised if they let you trade prospects or players in general. I think it'll be picks only and you could trade future. Like, obviously, you're going to be able to trade future picks. 
I don't know if they'll jump all in and allow players involved with the trading of the picks, but who knows? And there's always a workaround with that because I know the NBA does this where like you can, you know, obviously you can draft for a team and then just trade the guy once you sign them. Yeah, you do the the draft rights or whatever, and it's always. Yeah, and then they wear the wrong hat. Yeah, it's a mess. It's a it's an absolute mess. Don't do that. MLB. (laughs) I know they love this show. Um, So. (laughs) All right. Next question is from Emmett two, six, three. Every year, there's those guys available at the trade deadline for good bench depth. For example, Kelly Johnson and Juan Uribe from the 2015 squad. With the Mets already having great bench pieces in VR and Nito, both injured right now, but I know when this question was sent, they weren't. Is there any under-the-radar pieces that could fit well with this team? His two ideas here are Adam Duvall and Freddie Galvis. Uh, He says two guys from bad teams that can play multiple positions who can put the Mets over the top. So... Yeah, I mean, I'm not I have no problem with either of those names. I know Duvall is a bit of an all or nothing hitter this year. A lot of pop, uh, not a lot of average or on base. But the Mets are a team that, you know, they could use. I can't believe I'm saying this. They could actually use a little bit more pop. I do think they got to get eventually someone. I know pitching has to be the the key right now, but I do think they can use one more bat. But a lot of that also I'm sure they're waiting to see is what kind what will this team look like when they're whole when you have a JD Davis or a Jonathan VR as your big bench bat piece. So I do think there's part of that too, where they might say in-house, they go, man, you know, traditionally now VR might be our starting third baseman, and we love JD Davis as our big bopper off the bench. But if they are serious about a World Series, yeah, I think they can use one more serious bat off the bench so you don't have the Blankenhorns of the world coming in big spots. Yeah, honestly, I think the Aribe Kelly Johnson point that was made makes the most sense. I think that's exactly what this team needs. I don't think they need to go out and get some veterans. Yeah, just some veterans for the bench, like a guy like he. They mentioned Adam Duvall, and that's someone that makes total sense. I mean, he can hit lefties. He has pop. It gives you another right-handed option in the outfield. So if you do face a really tough lefty. Hypothetically, you could give Nimmo and Dom Smith the day off and play Duvall in left and Kevin Pillar in center, and you'd be better against lefties. I think that would be a good way to look at it. A bench guy with some pop that can hit left-handed pitching. And if there's some versatility there, that's fantastic. But that's really what I'm looking at when it comes to the offense at the deadline. Kind of a bench guy that play a couple spots, hit left-handed pitching, because obviously the Mets have struggled there. And the real trades need to be starting pitching. And then I always say, even though the bullpen's been good, if you're a contender, you just trade for a bullpen arm at the deadline. doesn't matter. Just get another one. I mean, you're going to need them come, you know, a stretch run in September and hopefully October. You're going to need to be deep in the bullpen. So at the deadline, you know, if I'm calling a team for a starting pitcher, I'm seeing, you know, well, what do you got in your bullpen that you could throw my way in the deal as well? So. That's kind of how I would, as of you know June 29th, approach the trade deadline. Depth pieces on offense, and then a back-end type starter and a reliever. Totally makes sense. And I think you know they'll probably go the, the mid-market relievers, and I know that's what you're hinting at, Joe, but when you look at it, there's always big names that are available. You look at a team like the Pirates, Richard Rodriguez, their closers having such a nice year. Uh, 10 saves because he doesn't get a lot of chances, but a 178. ERA and and just you know good strikeout rate 
So guys like that will just go on the market because teams that aren't contending, they just feel that they got to get rid of them so and get something back. So absolutely a, a really interesting one there. Okay, so one more question, and this one is absolutely my favorite because it's it's from this guy from a guy named Tim, but his username on iTunes is only Mets family in Iowa. So Tim asks, how long are you comfortable waiting for the offense to come around this year before wondering if there are legitimate concerns that need to be addressed? I know injuries and lineup consistency is a huge factor here, but multiple shutouts in the last couple of weeks is hard to watch. We are 70 games in. Thanks, guys. Love the pod. Hard to find good Mets content in Iowa. So, Tim, thank you very much. And to your family in Iowa, uh, thank you very much. This is a great one. I look at this and it's a really fair question because you got to look at it from each side. It's that there there has to be time wait here. But there also is two factors here. One, this team has World Series level pitching right now because they have three starters that have been some of the best in all of baseball. They have a really, really good bullpen and they've been playing really good defense. So it's you don't want to waste that kind of season. And they've overachieved. I mean, we didn't expect this kind of year from Taiwan Walker. We didn't expect this kind of year from Marcus Stroman. We thought both guys could be very, very solid, but they've been great. Jacob DeGrom is having, right now, I think the best season we've ever seen from a starting pitcher as long as, you know, it seems like history goes back or at least in the last 70 years or whatever it is. And and the bullpen's also overachieved. Now, the other side of it is getting away from the short term, which is just this year. I think you're absolutely looking at it and going, well, who's going to be here long term? Because Joe always says this on the show, you're, you're not going to pay everyone. And the reality of the situation is for the Mets, they are a very young team, but they also are a team that they'd probably like to figure out, are we going to give Michael Conforto a six or seven year deal? You know, how are we going to play things out in the long term with Pete Alonzo and Dom Smith? Now, that's one that you have plenty of time. Same with Jeff McNeil. But the bigger one is more of the Brandon Nimmo, Michael Conforto conversation. And Nimmo has been a highly productive player, but he's also hurt all the time. Conforto, we know what the we know what to expect. The demands are going to be there. And quite frankly, you know, this year he's been hurt. But as a whole, you have to have concerns about how a six or seven year contract would play out with him. So I think that's the long term side of it, that you're looking at it and going, who is somebody that we can't lose and who is somebody that maybe we feel like we can fill their spot and and use the money elsewhere. So a lot to take in here. And I know on this show, we're going to, for now, keep things focused in on the short term, but absolutely. When we get to September or October and probably more so November, it absolutely becomes the long-term question that everybody's wondering about. Yeah, I, I honestly think it is a long-term question, to be honest. You know, obviously we're gonna focus on the short term. I don't I don't know. I mean, what what do you wanna do? I mean, I don't know what you can address exactly. I mean, the lineup kind of is the lineup. I mean, are you gonna start benching guys like Dom Smith and you know, playing Billy McKinney every day? I I, I don't JD know. JD Davis what, is coming back. May yeah, like JD Davis is coming back and you'll have him and Jonathan VR, but I think short term it's just trust these guys are going to eventually perform to the back of their baseball cards and you know two three weeks from now the conversation could be a little different um, maybe more injuries happen or 
they continue to struggle in a big way, or maybe they turn it around and this whole conversation is kind of moot for the short term. But certainly when you look long term, it's especially now that you have an owner with money, you can actually be more picky with where you spend your big, big dollars. As crazy as that sounds, because it's not like if you let Conforto go, you automatically have to replace him with some cheap guy. Like you could go find another player and pay him money. So it's going to be interesting to see how they handle this for the long term from a financial standpoint, whether that's a Nimmo Conforto conversation, a Dom Smith Pete Alonso conversation. But for the short term, I'm kind of like, there's not really much you could do. I mean, you did change hitting coaches and it was hot for a while and now it's slowed down a little bit. Ultimately, these guys who are quality major league hitters need to start playing like quality major league hitters. And sometimes it's not deeper than that. And I know often, and I do it too, obviously, and you do it. We break this, this stuff down. But I look at this and I'm just like, these guys are good baseball players that are not playing like good baseball players. You have to figure at some point in time, they're going to start playing like good baseball players. And I, I just I just don't know what kind of solution there is per se, as much as it's just they have to play better. And sometimes it is that simple. You're not wrong. I mean, yeah, you nailed it. It's It's frustrating because it's such a long season and I'm absolutely guilty of this all the time. You get so wrapped in the short bad stretches right and i know things have been really bad i think as you and i sit here and record this they've lost the last nine of 14 games i mean the mets are in a rut if you could go out and say it now with that being said the mets are still up three games in the division and everybody is coming back from the injured list as we speak and big pieces you know like whether it's nimmo maybe after the all-star break you get back a carrasco Conforto and McNeil just got back. So it's, you know, you don't want to sit there and just make harsh reactions to their first couple of games back. So that's the tough part of it. But on the flip side, I understand the crowd that's saying, listen, it's been 75 games or whatever it may be. This is concerning. This is problematic. Even in the wins, it's 2-1. It's 4-2. It's 1-0. It, you know, they don't have a lot of nights where they go out there and say the starter had a rough one and and. You know, it's crazy to me. Like, I look at Monday night, right? Eikhoff absolutely throws batting practice and somehow managed to really only give up solo home runs. I think in his five runs he gave up, four of the runs were off solo home runs. And the outs were even lasers. I mean, he was giving up batting practice. But at the end of the day, and this has happened even with the rare bad starts from the normal guys, the bullpen seems to go out there for the most part, and this didn't happen Monday, but for the most part, they shut things down. But it's almost like you don't have the confidence that the Mets can score six runs in a night to pick up their starting pitchers or a guy that, quite frankly, has no business pitching in the big leagues right now. And it was really bad, but it could have been worse is what I'm saying. But you just go out there and you look at it, and even when they made it 5-4, they can't afford the next inning to miss out on a double play or give up a home run or anything because the offense just doesn't have the juice right now to score those kind of runs. So I get it from both sides. I get the frustration on a much lighter, more positive note. We are going to throw to the interview we did with Jim Callis, which was great. Uh, this pod in the next couple of weeks will be very, very MLB draft centric, very Mets centric. 
I know Joe and I are, you know, Joe's been covering the draft for a very long time. It was funny before we got on the line with Jim. Um, they were discussing it. Joe, Joe interviewed Jim in 2012. So that's how far this goes back. And I think everyone will really enjoy it. But Joe, your closing thoughts before we do uh, toss to our interview of the week. Just enjoy the interview with Jim Callis. He's fantastic. He's the GOAT. And yeah, just enjoy it. And we'll continue draft coverage next week on the show. And then right then and there, it'll be the draft will be here. And then we'll be recapping at the episode after that. So as quick as uh, it's going to get here, it's going to be gone just as quick. Thanks, everyone. Here's Jim Callis. It goes without saying that we are all missing travel right now. But you know what else we're missing? Getting more. With Priceline, you can save up to 60% on your favorite hotels, and you can also get exclusive deals on car rentals, flights, and more. And when you save more, you can do more. More, wow, this view is incredible. More, mmm, another round of room service, please. More, yes, I'm extending my vacation. Sorry, boss, if you're listening, just ignore that last part. Priceline knows that every trip is a big deal. So when you're ready to book your next one, check out Priceline.com for the easiest way to get more wow, mmm, and yes, just to name a few. Make sure to download the Priceline app for even more savings. No matter how the last game went, anytime you take the field, you've got a shot at greatness. Give your team the best shot at winning by recruiting more MVPs with Indeed. If you're hiring, you need Indeed because Indeed is the hiring partner where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Start hiring right now with $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Offer valid through March 31st. And Indeed is the only job site where you're guaranteed to find quality applications that meet your must-have requirements or else you don't pay. Go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire to claim your $75 credit before March 31st. One of the things I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy. And Indeed delivers four times more hires than all other job sites combined, according to Talent Nest. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and condition apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome back, everyone. We are really, really excited today because joining us is Jim Callis from MLB Pipeline. MLB.com does a great job covering the MLB draft, and this time of year is absolutely crazy with that. Jim, thanks for joining us. How are you holding up during all this? I'm doing okay. I mean, I will admit I missed the June draft. Like uh, This notion of the mid-July draft, it feels very foreign to me, and you know, I think it would have been kind of a odd year a little bit. Um, you know, coming off COVID, but you know, you, the calendar, you know, you throw in the calendar change. It's just, it, it's just <laughs> nothing feels like it's being had. It's being held at the right time, but at least it's being held compared to last year. So that's good. Yeah, that is a, it's a huge change. Absolutely. And for our listeners, most of them are familiar with all of your work, but some of them are very casual or new to following the MLB draft prospects and everything this show covers. I wanted to ask you, how did you get into this field? I know you've been doing it for quite some time, worked multiple places doing it, obviously now at a huge site like MLB.com and the MLB Pipeline. But how did you get into this and just what it's been like to watch this event 
grow and continue to evolve? Yeah, well, I, I've been doing this stuff pretty much since I got out of college, to be honest with you. Uh, you know, I, I, I'll make a, a long story, so much shorter. I, I, had, I, I loved reading Baseball America. Uh, I discovered it about the time I got into fancy baseball when I was a teenager in the mid eighties when I was in high school. And then you, it, it's <laughs> imagine a world with like, where you can't watch prospect videos on your phone because people don't even have cell phones and you can't watch stuff on the internet because literally there's no internet. And every two weeks you get baseball America and would have all these stories about up and coming players and the minors in college and the draft. And I loved it. And I wound up, I wound up getting an internship there in the summer of 88. Well, I, I, I still had a quarter to go before I graduated from the University of Georgia. Um, and then my first project, I still remember, was inputting the name and position at school of every player ever drafted. We were working on draft book. And, um, and so by the end of the summer, I, I had a full-time job lined up. So um, after I graduated in December 88, I, I literally drove from Athens to Atlanta, where the winter meetings were, and, and started working. Um, and I've been doing it ever since. And, you know, 30-something years later, it still interests me as much as ever. I, I didn't do as much draft coverage back then. Alan Simpson did it, most of it. And I, I was doing a lot of college stuff, but but I did some. And it's it just amazing to me how, you know, like I, I, I was telling Alan, I actually saw him last week when I was at the draft combine because he lives in Durham and the draft combine was in, in the research triangle. How I, I, you know, I don't know how he covered the draft, like pre-cell phones, pre-internet like now at least if like a guy gives me a tip on a guy i can you know text three or four people or, or more than that if i want to and look him up on the web and probably see video and hey here's his college stats and i mean back then i mean literally like if i wanted college stats from a guy you'd have to get the school literally to mail them or fax them to you the, the fax was as high tech as we got and you know <laughs> the, the showcase circuit didn't really exist. There were a couple events, like the area code games have been around for a long time, and, and maybe there was one other event, but you didn't have this high school showcase circuit where, you know, all the best players are playing against each other. So, you, you know, high school guys, it was hard getting a read on them because they, a lot of times, didn't face very good competition during the spring. And, and even the, the, the Cape Cod League was just coming into its own. So even, you know, you, you certainly did not have the proliferation of wood bat summer leagues that we have now. And, and you know, college baseball, you know, you, when I started covering it, at the end of the 80s and early 90s, I probably could come up with a list of 15 programs, top 15 programs in the country, and odds were that at least six of them would be among the eight teams playing the College World Series every year. And, and now college baseball has gotten a lot better, and you know you have all the, the, the explosion of data. Um, you know, it, it, it's crazy. I mean, it's, it's, it's like I, I, I don't – I think I would have been amazed if you'd showed me in 1989 what I would be dealing with in 2021, all the all – the, you know, just how – you know, and also the popularity. I mean, there was no MLB network. There was no televised draft. I mean, this is <laughs> – this was as exciting as it got back in – and then, so when I started Baseball America, MLB did not release the draft results publicly – at least round by round, because they were convinced that college coaches were using the list to recruit players. Like, they just get the draft list and go, oh, this guy's a 12th rounder. So they weren't even announcing what rounds guys were drafted in. They literally would release the first round to the AP, and then you'd, you'd get, like, an alphabetical list of players that everybody drafted. And as high-tech as it got, and at the time, I remember thinking this was the coolest thing in the world in the early 90s. We used to do a, our, our College Player of the Year press conference a couple days before the start of the College World Series. And we would bring the guy, either we'd fly him in if his team wasn't there, if he was there, he'd come over. And we'd have all the all Amer our first team All-American tour in Omaha would come over. And Jim Henry was coaching Creighton at the time. And Creighton had a run of All-Americans. So those guys would show up. 
And then the big highlight for me was we would pipe in the conference call of the first round of the draft. Like they let us do that as part of our press conference. And that just seemed like that was super high tech that you got to hear the first round picks as they were happening <laughs> on a conference call piped into this, this banquet room at the, the holiday Inn holodome on 72nd street. Like, and I remember, uh, I remember seeing Todd Helms reaction when he got drafted by the Rockies and he knew he was going to get to hit in Coors field. He was pretty excited about that. But like, but that, that just seemed like that was the height of technology that we had this technology and we could pipe in the first round picks live on the conference call. Um, <laughs> and now, like, I mean, we're, we're showing video and highlights and breaking down, you know, everybody, you know, pick by pick for the first 10 rounds of the draft on MLB Network and, and streaming on the Internet. Like, it's, it's definitely much, much different than it was 30 years ago. Talk about a change. So jumping into now the 2021 class. So before we get into a few specific players, what are your overall thoughts on this draft class? What are some of the strengths and weaknesses that you can see? Yeah, I feel like the class is a little bit weaker than usual, to be honest with you. I, I, I don't think we have, not that you judge a draft by the top player, but you, you don't have that one slam dunk, you know, Steven Strasburg, Bryce Harper, Spencer Torkelson, Adley Rutschman type of guy. Like, you're just like, okay, this guy's going number one. Or even like a Bobby Witt Jr. who, you know, was in the same draft as Adley Rutschman, so he went two. I, I, I feel like there's a tier of... About eight, there's a tier of eight players in my mind who are all kind of like on that that first group of, of players. You know, it would be you know the, the two Vanderbilt pitchers, Jack Leiter and Kumar Rocker, and this is in a specific order. Then you know, four high school shortstops: Marcelo Meyer, Jordan Lawler, Cleo Watson, Brady House, and then Louisville catcher Henry Davis and, and Oklahoma high school pitcher uh, Jackson Job. And I think that's kind of the top tier of eight. And then I think there's like a second tier of about oh, seven or so guys. And then after that, I think it's hard finding consensus as to who else should go in the in the back half of the first round. I, you know, I, I talked to one team and they're saying like, you know, their attitude is we won't laugh at your first rounder if you won't laugh at ours. But I, I think you're going to see on draft day, um, on the 11th, on July 11th, that you know once we get into the back half of the first round, you'll you'll probably see a couple players picked who all the media lists have ranked in the 40s or 50s. I, I just don't think there's much consensus. On, on on who belongs like in, in that area. You know, there's 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 like four college hitters who I think are slam dunk first round picks. And I don't think there's anybody else who's a lock. And you know, there'll probably be another four or five of them taken in the first round. But depending on who you talk to, like if you surveyed all thirty teams, you might get twenty or twenty five different names as to who those five you know, college bats should be. And it's you know, same thing for college pitchers. I think there's probably five college pitchers I think are absolute locks to go in the first round. And there'll probably be another four or five of those guys. But again, you might get 15 or 20 names as to who those other four or five guys should be. So I think it's going to be wide open. And, you know, the high school, I, I think the strength of the draft is those four high school shortstops. It's a special group. But after that, I don't feel like the high school position crop or or the, the high school pitchers are particularly special. It's not. It's just not a really deep draft at the top. Speaking of those shortstops, two of them that we've heard about for a while now, obviously high school guys, Marcel Meyer and Jordan Lawler. I know MLB Pipeline has in the top 250 them at one and two, and, and you hear about them constantly. Can you break down those guys and, and really what the difference is between them? Yeah, I, I think if I mean, I'll, I'll speak more in a sense, but if I broke it down into a sentence, I think Marcel Meyer is more polished and has a higher floor. 
and and Jackson and, and Jordan Lawler is is uh, more explosive and has a higher ceiling. Um, you know, Lawler's quicker than Meyer. You know, Meyer's only an average runner. You know, home to first. Um, I think Lawler's got more raw power than Meyer, but I think I think Meyer's a better hitter. He's a more polished hitter. I think he's going to get to a, if we we're being really taking like a, high, a better percentage of his raw power than Jordan Lawler will. Um, and I think he's a smoother defender. So it's, I, I think it's kind of a matter of taste, honestly. If you want to you know, roll the dice and take a little bit more risk and go for higher ceiling, you could go for Jordan Lawler. Uh, you know, actually, we've got Meyer ranked number one. And, you know, he's – when I say forward, I don't mean like, oh, he's just a safe pick. Like, you know, Marcelo Meyer is probably the best – you know, he might be the best pure hitter in this draft. And, he, and he's – you know, might be the best shortstop in this draft. Um, he, he's pretty he's a pretty interesting player. So the last couple of years, the Mets have gone under slot in the first with Brett Beatty and Pete Crow Armstrong, which led to being able to go big over slot in the third round with Matt Allen and then the second round with JT Ginn. If they wanted to take this approach again this year, what types of players would you consider, you know, kind of best case scenarios who could potentially fall to them in the second round? See, that's the tricky thing because there's never any guarantee who you're going to get in in the second round. Like, and Matt Allen... I honestly feel like with Matt Allen, I don't think they took Beatty necessarily to set up Matt Allen. I think it was more, hey, Matt Allen's here. Like, because that, that year the draft was the first, the first day was two rounds. This year it's just going to be the first round. And then, so back then it was two rounds. And I think, like a lot of teams, they were surprised that, that Matt Allen was still there on the board. And if you look at their subsequent picks, they basically had no, they, they gave him basically every dollar they had and, then, and signed a bunch of senior signs. So I, I don't think they took Beatty necessarily to set up Allen. I, I do think with Ginn, I, I do think that was probably one where they, 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 they more had in place. Um, and, and, you know, with Pete Crow, what was nice is, you know, Pete Crow Armstrong went about in the draft where he should have. You know, it wasn't like they, they sacrificed talent. And and personally, I, I don't really feel like they, they, they sacrificed that much talent with Beatty. It's just you had people hung up on his age. You know, some teams with their models. You know, Beatty was 19 and a half at the time of the draft. But he's also one of the best hitters in the draft. So I think they've kind of tried to thread the needle, to be honest with you, in terms of maybe saving money if they have the opportunity, but not sacrificing talent. I mean, shoot, they kind of did the same thing. I hate to bring him up on a Mets podcast with Jared Kelnick. Um, <laughs> I know we're not supposed to say his, his, his name on the podcast. So, and then, and then I got sidetracked. I was to say the tricky part too is you can't guarantee who's going to get to get to you with your second pick. So, um, you know, like I'll use last year's example. You know, I think most people thought the Orioles when they took Heston Kerstad at two wanted the, the Pennsylvania high school right-hander Nick Bitsko in the second round with their, their second pick, and the Rays took him in the first round. And so they had to change their strategy. I, I, if I had to get, I mean, just from what I've heard, the name you hear a lot with the Mets is Colson Montgomery. Um, you know, like talked about as a potential tenth overall pick, which would be kind of a reach to me. Um, like I think he'd be more apt to be their target as a guy you overpay in the second round, except I think there's a lot of interest in him at the end of the first round, so he might not get there. Um, so I don't know if I really answered your question, but if they do execute a strategy, I feel like like one half of that strategy will involve Colson Montgomery, uh, who's a high school. He's an infielder from Indiana. He's 6'4". Um, got kind of that Corey Seager build, probably wants to be in a third baseman, you know, really finished strong. I, I don't necessarily think the high school competition in Indiana was, was, was that formidable, but he destroyed it. Um, but I, I feel like if they execute that strategy, they, you, you could, you, it's funny, it could go both ways. They could take Colson Montgomery at 10 
and then save the money for somebody in the second round. Or they could save money at 10 and then give a bunch of money to Colson Montgomery after making him fall to them in the second round. So I know you're at the MLB Combine, which is, you know, obviously a, a new event and something that caught our eye, something we were really intrigued by, what it would be, what it would look like. And from afar, it looked like a great experience. Do you expect this to not only grow over the years and potentially mirror something like the NFL's pre-draft combine, but is this something that you think can be vital for teams and the league going forward? Um, somewhat, yes. Somewhat, I think there's a lack. I don't know if it's ever going to be as big as the NFL combine in terms of interest, because as much as I love the draft and you guys love the draft, I, I just don't think fans know who these players are. You know, the, the casual fan knows who a lot of these guys are. And they also aren't going to, you know, step right into the big league team's roster like they do in the NFL. Um, that said, I do think it's going to continue to get bigger and better. Um, I think they've, you know, I, I, you know, it was run really well. The, the event, I think the players really enjoyed it. Um, you know, they were able to, kind of choose a la carte, you know, what aspects they wanted to participate in, whether it was on-field workouts or for high school players' actual games, or they just wanted to do medical testing or not do medical testing. There was some agility and, and strength testing. Um, I think everybody, both on the player and team side, thought there was a lot of benefit to, to doing face-to-face -face interviews. They had kind of a, you know, speed, I don't know speed dating, but 20-minute interviews set up where you can interview with a bunch of different teams. If, you know, the interest was reciprocal on both sides. Um, and I think that was really – people really like that, I think, especially coming off COVID, where there, there's been less of that in the last couple of years than there had been in the past. Um, you know, I, I think it'll be interesting to see yeah, – you, you know, if you watched it – and I thought the broadcast – I was on the broadcast. I didn't watch the broadcast, but I, I listened to what was going on. I thought the broadcast came off pretty well. Um, you know, they, they bounced around. They interviewed a lot of people. They showed some guys doing some things. I think the key, you know, to make it bigger is is getting more of the top players to participate in the on-field stuff. And I, I just, you know, that, that's that's kind of a little bit of a conundrum because, you know, you, you guys could see. I mean, outside of maybe taking BP, you know, all the guys who are going to go, who are there, who are going in the first couple, three rounds and getting seven-figure bonuses – you don't really have much to prove, and there's not real, not, not a whole lot of upside necessarily to, to going out and, and testing your. You know, like Colson Montgomery, for example, was a, like, like he didn't play in the high school games. You know, he did BP, but like, you know, what if he played three games? I, I don't think it would have moved the needle that much. But like, playing three games, what if he got beat up by good velocity, and then teams are like, ah, oh, I'm not sure what's going on here. There's no reason for him to expose himself like that. So, um, you know, I think that'll be the challenge going forward is trying to get more top players to participate on field. I, I, I do think the players I talked to who were there and just were talking to teams, I, I think, you know, it was first-class event. The players, you know, enjoyed, you know, they were able to do what they wanted to do. And I think the word of mouth is going to be pretty good, that they're going to go back and, you know, a lot of these high school guys at the Combine are going to wind up going to college. And, and they'll tell their, their teammates, you know, tell their teammates or friends, yeah, the Combine's pretty cool. You should do that if you get the chance. And, and I think they will get more guys to come in the future. It's just getting them to participate on the field stuff would be, would, would be even cooler. So there's a couple pitchers who a couple months ago we expected to go in the top 10 picks, and that's Jaden Hill from LSU and Gunnar Hoagland from Ole Miss, who both had Tommy John surgery. Do you think both Hill and Hoagland will both end up in the first round, or do you think one of them or both of them could actually fall out of the first round? I think Hoagland goes in the first round, and I think Hill probably does not. Um, yeah, like, like, you know, and again, I mean, 
thinking about this from a Mets perspective, like Hoseland, I, I, there's no way he's getting to the Mets' second pick, and, and Hill could. If he was just too good I, before he got hurt. You know, it's Tommy John surgery. I think you like you feel pretty good about the guy coming back. You know, guys coming back from that. I, I think it's going to be like when the Yankees took Clark Schmidt. You know, they, they took him 16th overall. You'll get somebody who'll take him. I think in the teens. You know, if he doesn't get hurt, he's probably the third and that worst fourth highest college pitcher drafted behind uh, the two Vanderbilt guys and maybe dueling with Texas's Ty Bad. And so I think he's still going to go really good. You know, Hill, the problem is, is you know, and Hill was a guy, both those guys were guys in high school. You know, Hoglin was actually a, Hoglin was actually a, a supplemental first round pick and, and had a deal. And then there was a dispute over the fiscal and, and he wound up um, going to college. But, you know, Gene Hill was a known commodity in high school too. He just, he just wasn't signable. He was sent and going to LSU. The thing is, he hasn't pitched a whole lot. You know, he had some shoulder issues as a freshman and didn't pitch a lot. And then you had the COVID season last year. And then, you know, probably because his elbow was, was getting ready to give out. Like, his stuff was really inconsistent. He wasn't able to command stuff this spring. This spring. So, like, like unlike Hoagland, who was good for, you know, a, you know, a full season, then the COVID season, and then the majority of this season, you know, he hasn't really had that same run of success. So I think he's more likely to go in the second round, like – like he'd be, you know, again, I might be wrong. If there's a team that really covets him, you know, they could take him higher than that. But I, I think he's, he's, I think Hill is definitely somebody's second pick. You know, and maybe that's in the sandwich round. But I, I don't think he's anybody's first pick. Coming into the season, another college arm. It seems like everywhere Kumar Rocker was the consensus number one guy, or at least at a minimum at the top of that conversation. And now, from everything we hear, we see, we read, it seems like he's destined to fall out of the top five or very well could fall out of the top five. What has happened to cause this? And, you know, as a Mets podcast, that's the name fans have their eyes on, of course. What are the odds he actually makes it to the 10th overall selection? Um, okay, well, I'll, I'll, I'll answer that. The first part, you know, we, we ranked him number one coming this season. Um, I think he was the most established of all the guys coming into the season. And I still think he's in that first tier, but I, I just think there was this misperception. You know, and some of it is just, I mean, look, I mean, he was great as a freshman down the stretch in the playoffs. You know, he didn't dominate like that all season as a freshman. But I just think he was the most famous guy. You know, you got all the hype, you know, on the same team with Jack Leiter, you know, pitching ninjas, you know, got all these crazy gifts of, of Kumar blowing the ball by guys. And, and I just think there was this misperception that it was like Kumar – or Kumar and Jack Leiter, and then everybody else in the draft. And it was never like that. Um, you know, Kumar was in that first tier, and we ranked him first, but it wasn't like it was Kumar head and shoulders of everybody else. You know, he's, he's had a really good year. I mean, if he pitches, if he gets a chance to pitch again, you know, if they want to go into a third game in the finals, the College World Series, he's probably going to lead the nation in strikeouts. Um, he, he's had a very good statistical year. You know, his stuff has fluctuated a little bit at times. Like, his fastball velocity has fluctuated a little, which isn't unusual. Um I think he's still kind of the same pitcher he was coming into the year. I don't think he's really better. I don't think he's worse. Um, you know, I think people sometimes get caught up in, you know, he had the 19 strikeout no-hitter against Duke in the in the Super Regionals a couple of years ago, and he was MVP of the, the College World Series that year too. But it's not like Kumar goes out and every week it's, hey, Kumar's throwing 97 and, you know, the slider's unhittable. It, you know, it's just that's – he's good, but he's not – He's not Steven Strasburg good. I'm not sure. You know, I mean, I'm not sure he's. You know, he's probably similar to like, like Carlos Rodon was when Carlos Rodon was the best pitcher in college baseball a few years ago. Um, so that's that's what's happened. I, I don't think he's he's fallen off. I just think 
you know, he's still in that first tier, and there's other guys who people like better. And, and I do think, like, I, I agree. I, I, I don't really think he's going in the top five picks. I think he goes 6-10. to 10. Um, I think the Diamondbacks could take him. I think the Royals could take him. Don't envision the Rockies taking him at 8. I think the Angels could take him at 9. I kind of doubt he goes to 10. Like, it, it, it's just not a deep year for college pitching. And I think the only way Kumar gets to 10 is you would need – like say at least a couple teams ahead of them to cut deals with guys who aren't on the top tier to save money and push you know and that would push some of those top tier guys down to where Rocker would be on the board at 10 but the the problem is like I really like I actually like Jackson Joe the high school pitcher more than Rocker or well I should say this if you're grading him out on stuff and control you would you would put Job ahead of Leiter and Rocker. Now, you know, they they've proven it at a much higher level. They've dominated the SEC. They they they've shown they can stay healthy, you know, two, three years down the road further than Job has to this point. But if you were just doing quality pitches and command, you you would take Job over those guys. But teams are so skittish of high school right handers that unless the Tigers take him at three, I'm not sure anybody I, – like, I feel like he's going to be the last guy drafted in that top tier of eight players unless he goes three. So, you, you, like I said, you kind of need two or maybe three teams ahead of the Mets to cut deals to have Rocker somehow get down to him at 10. It's not impossible, but I would say it would be more likely that, that Jackson Job would be there at 10 maybe or, or one of the high school shortstops. And I'll say Job has been my guy since last year. I saw the, the video on the – at the circuit when he was throwing, you know, the 3000 plus RPM sliders. So that would be exciting for me personally. But I, think, of, I, I think the Mets would consider him a 10. Like, I, I don't think they would run away screaming, Oh, it's a high school right-hander um, or anything like that. Um, but uh, yeah, it could. So we, I put out on Twitter to get questions from our listeners. And one of our great listeners at Mets fan 0431 said, Jim, what are your thoughts on in the future, te- letting teams trade draft picks. Do you think that would be good for the game? Yeah, I, th- I think it would create interest. Um, uh, you know, right now the only picks you can trade are the are the competitive balance picks at the end of the first and the second round, which the Mets will know or have a competitive balance pick because it's based on market size and, and revenues and that type of stuff. Um, and, and right now you can't during the COVID drafts. They aren't allowing those picks to be traded. Um, but yeah, I think it would definitely create interest. Um, you know, it spice up the broadcast. Uh, <laughs> I'll admit from a selfish standpoint, like, I, it would make my life harder, my job harder, because one of the great <laughs> things about doing mocks compared to like the NFL draft, like you hear all the time, like the NFL writers talking about how everybody lies to them and tries to mislead them because you, know, you don't want anybody to know who you're going to pick. And like right now, like if, you know, like let's say I'm talking to a team that's picking 13th, they can tell me, hey, we, I mean, that, no, not the team say, here, here's our board, who's who we're picking, but teams can kind of be free, like, yeah, we like that guy, we don't like that guy, yeah, this or that, because they know, like, they don't have to worry about somebody moving up ahead of them, but, like, if all of a sudden it gets out that, I guess the Phillies are picking 13th, so I'll just, like, the Phillies, like, uh, Benny Montgomery, like they, like, they don't want people to know that. Because then somebody might say, "Oh, like, well, if they're going to take him, we're going to trade up to eleven and get him, or something." So um, it would it would make my life harder. But like, I do think there's less opposition to it than there was. I know. I mean, this has been brought up for years and years, and 
you know, I remember I've talked to people about it, and I think, you know, 10, 15 years ago, people were more concerned about agents manipulating the draft and saying, oh, my player only wants to play for the Yankees, so either, you know, you trade him to the Yankees or let the Yankees trade for the pick, or he's not going to sign, blah, blah, blah. But I, I think there's less concern about that. I, I don't think it's universal where everybody's clamoring for it, but I do think it, that idea has more support than it would have 10 or 15 years ago. Final question here, Jim. What's the latest rumor? And you've, you've sprinkled some of these in, but what's the latest rumors you're hearing regarding the Mets picking at 10? Just looking at the historical trends, you know, obviously they, they go prep bat or, or college arm, but do you think anything will be different this year? Um, I think, you know, here's what I think happened. So I think, one, you know, I, I mentioned that top tier of eight players. I think in an ideal world, the Mets look up and one of those eight guys is there at number 10. And I, I feel like that's maybe... 50-50. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe it's more like 40-60. But I think that's, I think that's the idea. Um, you know, th- th- that's the biggest hope. And then I think if it's gone, then you're probably looking, honestly, at, you know, I think they go second tier. I, I think it would, they would probably take somebody like Sal Frelick, the outfielder out of B.C., or Ty Madden, the right-hander out of Texas. Um, we, I think they kind of have as, a, as their favorites in that second tier of guys. Um and so theoretically, you pick and ten, you'll get one eight. The one of the top tier guys are one of those guys. And like I said, I mean, you keep hearing a lot of Colson Montgomery talk for them, but I, I kind of feel, I kind of feel like that's more doing a deal, getting him, overpaying him in the second round than underpaying him in the first. But again, maybe it is Colson Montgomery because I don't think he's going to get your second round pick. So if you really wanted him, you kind of have your cake and eat it too. Take him, you know, underslot him because he's probably not going to go. And the tie probably goes closer to the 20 than 10 if the Mets don't take him and, and then have the money to, to make a run at somebody in the second round or later. He's Jim Callis from MLB Pipeline, MLB.com. Jim, great conversation. Uh, really, really appreciate you giving us some time and, and good luck these next couple of weeks. I know this is uh, this is going to be quite the stretch here for you. Yeah, don't worry. I'm, I'm, I'm hanging in there. I'm hanging in there. But thanks. Appreciate the time and uh, we'll do this again next year. I'm Amira Rose Davis, host of the new season of American Prodigy, all about Black girls in gymnastics. My white coaches just said, you may not get the scores that you deserve because you're Black. It's the story of a decades-long struggle of Black gymnasts trying to find and amplify their voices. I can't be the next Simone Biles. I can't be the next Dominique Dodds. I can only be the next version of myself. Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever you get your podcasts.